Uh, the life of Moses has some pretty cool stories about trees in it. We've been going through a series where we look at these uh, references and these imageries of trees in the Bible. And uh, when you get to Moses, his life is just full of tree imagery. He uses a branch to duel with Egyptian magicians. He throws a branch into a bitter pond to make the water clean. His story starts out with him in a wooden boat on the Nile. He camps with the Israelites by 70 palms. He raises a branch and parts the waters. But probably the biggest tree story in the life of Moses is the burning bush. Now, before you're like, wait a minute, that's a bush. That's not a tree. Um, just give me a minute to nerd out with, like, biblical languages for a second. And if, you can, if it's going to bore you, just pause your brain for a second, and it won't take long. Um, you're right. We usually translate burning bush as a bush. The Hebrew word is sneh, which is... Uh, only used here in the Hebrew scriptures, just when referencing the burning bush. And the translators aren't really sure what's happening here. They know that the biblical authors are being clever. They're trying to do some clever wordplay here, but we're not really sure what it is. It's like when a joke's so complicated or so intellectual, it just goes right over your head. That's exactly what's happening to us here in the Hebrew. Now, some have theorized that Snet means a thorny bush, some type of thorny bush. Achaia trees and thorny Achaia trees grow on that mountain. Um, but another reason they think this is because the name of this mountain is called two different names in the Bible, Horeb and Sinai. So Mount Sinai in the Bible is the same as Mount Horeb. In the overarching narrative in the Hebrew Bible, these names are interchangeable. They both identify the location where God formed his covenant with Israel, but it's two different names. And you say, Alex, why do I care? Well, Horeb means burning, bright, glorious, like some type of heat or energy or fire. And Sinai means thorn. So in some weird way, the burning bush is essentially combining the two names for this mountain. And so they're like, the biblical authors are definitely trying to tie us into something, but no scholar seems to know quite what they're trying to say. So all that to be said... Hebrew scholars write their PhD thesis on this stuff, and I know you're already like zoned out and bored to death by it, but let's settle on this. This is more than just a bush. Um, the, the authors are trying to get us to see this is more than just like, oh, a bush, you know, like something, they're trying to clue us in that something else is going on. So how should we refer to it? As a burning bush, as a thorn bush, as a tree? Here's Dr. Kim, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. This is what he says. The burning bush merges the images of the tree of life and the fire of God's presence into one image. That's what we should be seeing here, the picture of the tree of life and the very fire of God's presence. The story of Moses links back to Abraham and to Isaac, other tree stories we've already covered, when God called Abraham twice and Abraham responded, here I am. And in this moment, in this story, themes from Eden, Noah, and Abraham all overlap. So all the tree stories we've seen already are going to overlap in this one story today. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's look at this passage and look at this image of the tree of life that shows up to Moses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, and Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, here I am. Here's that reference back to Abraham, where he calls Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. If your name didn't end in Ites, you couldn't live there. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. See, Israelites ends with Ites. They can belong. And, um, sorry, terrible joke. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. You're going to come back. You're going to come back here with the people, and you're going to worship here. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what's the name of this God? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay, before we jump in to what we just read, it's important that we understand how did Moses get here? Like, how did he get to this place? Well, first of all, there was a cruel pharaoh who saw the Israelites living in his land as a threat, and he's like, we got to do population control, and he began killing their sons as they were born. But Moses escapes this because his mother builds him a little boat, sends him out on the Nile, and he just happens upon Pharaoh's daughter bathing in the river, and she takes him into her house and raises him as her own son. Moses grows into a man, and he sees one of the Egyptians beating a Hebrew his own people and so he goes and kills the egyptian in an act of violence and then this is another destructive detour in his life and all of a sudden he's running for his life into the desert so there he spends 40 years out in the desert working for his father-in-law having little of his own i don't know if you noticed in that passage we just read after 40 years in the desert he's not watching his sheep whose sheep is he watching he's still watching his father-in-law's Think about that. You're still working for your father-in-law. You don't even have your own sheep. He has nothing. He's a nobody living out on the backside of the desert watching someone else's sheep. If he thinks he had a destiny, if he thought, you know what, by some divine design, I made it into Pharaoh's house. I have an important destiny or role to play. If he thought any of that, at this point, he thinks his purpose is long wasted. Um, Maybe because of what he has done, he killed somebody, he went on the run, and maybe because of what was done to him. He was just born at the wrong time, he was born in the wrong place, he was born under the wrong situations. But whatever the reason, he feels like his life is wasted, he's missed his opportunity, and it is at this moment that God appears, and really the story of Moses begins in earnest. All this is really backstory to really the real meat of the story that the biblical authors get in, which is Moses from this point onward. Sometimes I'm so worried about like what I've missed out on that I forget that sometimes the best stories are still ahead. Now, it's in this moment that he has this burning bush moment, that he has this encounter with God. 
And so we've been looking at all these promises given in and around trees in these stories in the Bible. So what's the promise given here at the burning bush or the burning tree? I am is sending you to rescue people in bondage. And your failures and your tragedies aren't going to stop his ability to use you to help hurting people. That was his message to Moses, and I think that's the promise to us. Our own insecurities and fears aren't going to stop his ability to use us. Our own history, our own failures, our own disappointments, our own destructive behaviors, and those things that have been done to us won't stop us from being used by God. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a hustle culture. Have you seen this online? Hustle culture. Um, I saw this guy the other day. It's like one of those ads that come up when you want to watch a YouTube video on how to like repair something. But first, this guy pops up. He's like, if you haven't founded your third company yet by 29, you're wasting your life. I have three convertibles. I've sold two tech companies already. I'm on my third. And he's like, you need to hustle and grind, work 70-hour weeks until you get the life you want. And I thought, man, I feel tired just watching this video. Like, this feels terrible. Hustle culture is an intense focus on productivity, ambition, and success with little regard for rest or self-care or any sense of work-life balance. I have friends who use words constantly like grind, side gig, side hustle, and they're always quoting stuff to me like, you just got to give 110% all the time and never stop. Like, how do you give 110%? 100% is the most you can give. You know, it doesn't, doesn't even make sense. Or, like, um, a friend one time sent me this meme, and he's like, the dream is free. The hustle is sold separately. Like, what does that even mean? Like, it feels like someone took words and just threw them randomly at a life board, and they're like, that means something. I'm going to post that. This messaging, though, I don't know about you, but I, I think for me, it fills me with a sense of anxiety. I'm getting older. I haven't had three startups. Like, if you consider Horizon 1, I've had one, you know, kind of like, it's kind of clunking along, you know. Um, I haven't given my first TED Talk. I'm turning 40 this year, so I think it's natural to reflect on your life as you hit kind of the average halfway point. And I think it's normal to look at your life at different points and think, Man, if this had gone differently, my life would look dramatically differently. If that had worked out, if I had got this, if I hadn't suffered that, if I hadn't made this stupid decision, my world would look dramatically differently. And I find that we live in a culture that says for your life to matter, you need to be really busy. And busyness is this constant temptation, I think, because busyness makes us feel important. One of the best things someone told me when I was a young minister was your greatest temptation will be to stay busy because it'll make you feel like you're doing something that matters. And um, that is a temptation, but I don't think it's just for ministers. I think it's for all of us. Or as humans, we have a deep need to feel important. Our culture worships fame and attention and that feeling that we matter and that we're important. But no matter how much fame we get, no matter how much prestige or achievement we get, there's always more to be had more that we need to be happy. So all this busyness and chasing fame, all this hustle culture leaves us tired and empty and unsatisfied and ultimately frustrated at where we are in life and with what we have and sometimes with even who we are with. And maybe like Moses, you look at your life and you think, what a waste. Like, I have not accomplished some great phenomenal things. Maybe you look at your life and you're like, if Pharaoh hadn't wiped out my whole generation, things would have been different. Or maybe you look at your life and you think, man, if I hadn't killed that Egyptian, like obviously this is Moses' life, but 
in our lives, we have those same kind of things. We have things that have been done to us, and then things that we have done, and we think, man, if, that, if we had just been able to change those things, everything would be different. I tend to write the end of a story way before God does, and I think most people do. We put a period where God has a comma. We think it is the last chapter when only it's the end of Act 1. God isn't surprised when your story zigs or zags. We dream about the future and what it looks like, but rarely do we envision the things that will be done to us and the things that we will do that will knock us off track. We imagine a straight line between where we are and where we want to go, and this is a bit of free life advice. Like, you can just jot this down in the back of your brain. No life map has straight lines. Like, life never travels in straight lines. It's always a zig and a zag. There are things you don't expect. There are mistakes you make. And rarely does destiny travel in straight lines. When it feels like your life is off track, God hasn't given up on your story. Our failures, setbacks, and stolen moments are woven into his story, and he redeems them. That's exactly what happened to Moses, and that's what happens to us because of Jesus. Consider Galatians 2.20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies because your bodies are God's. Your life isn't yours. It's God's. Your body isn't yours, it's God's. Your story isn't yours, it's God's. And he has some plans for it, and he has some plans for you. You have a role to play in the grand narrative of life, and that role may not be flashy. It may not be to make history. It may not be to always take the straight, easy path that you'd like to take. We live in a culture that tells us, even sometimes in the church, that if it isn't big, it didn't matter. If it didn't bring a lot of money, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't make a huge splash, it doesn't matter. But the most important thing in any of our lives is to play the role God has for us. To trust him in the small roles because they are part of his big story. It's his story. We're just players in it. To see what you do as a janitor or a teacher or as a doctor as equally important in the eyes of God. Because whatever we do is with people and for people and is ministry. That's right. You're ministers. Not just me. Not just because I have some initials after my name. We're all ministers. Ministry is not what is done in a church building. It is what is done for the good of other people made in the image of God. And so you minister in your workplace. You minister in your neighborhoods. You minister in your families. Everywhere you go, you go as a representative of God ministering to hurting people. Often we think the cruel thing that was done to us in the past or the terrible mistake that we've made means our ability to serve God has ended. It's not the end of the line. It's simply a curve in the road. God picks you back up and sends you back on down the line. Your story isn't even over in death. That's the beauty of Jesus, right? Because it's a part of his story, and his story is a story of life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, over the last few weeks, Darby and I have talked about, like, how purposeless we feel. Like, we had this beautiful little girl we adored in our home for 25 days, and then the birth parents changed their mind, and she was taken away. And being parents for a short amount of time seemed like life suddenly made sense. It was like life felt kind of, like, meandering and, like, what's the point? And then we met this little girl, and we fell in love with her, and it was like, 
all of a sudden my life made sense. I was like, I exist to protect this little girl, to nurture her, and to help her become a good human adult. And it was like, this is what I'm here to do. Um, and when she was taken away, it felt like a terrible crash in our story. It felt like a train wreck that, like, there were no survivors. It just, it just felt like, well, there's where my story was headed, and that's the end. It felt like the story was going one direction, and then, like, yoink, you're in free fall. Um, you know that great theological masterpiece, Mario Kart? That's a great transition right there, right, isn't it? Um, Sometimes, like in Mario Kart, you drive off the edge of Rainbow Road and you're falling through space. And then Lakitu, that's that little guy on a cloud with a fishing pole. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay, thanks. I don't feel completely like this is a terrible example if a few people know it. But he comes with a fishing pole and he picks you up and he puts you back on the track. No matter how many times you drive off that track, he comes over with his little fishing pole and picks you up and puts you back on the track. And sometimes I get so confused when I'm playing Mario Kart, I'm driving the wrong direction, and then he comes over and he has a little sign that says wrong way. God's exactly like that. He's like Lakitu, I don't know how to say it, in Mario Kart. When we drive off track, when it feels like our story, someone's thrown a banana peel and we get wiped out and we're completely off track and it feels like the end of the line, God comes along with his little fishing pole, picks us up and puts us back on track. When we make a mistake and we're driving in the wrong direction, he comes along with a little sign and says, turn around, you're going the wrong way. Moses is like, who am I to get involved in rescuing these people? I'm a murderer. I'm a mistake. I should have died with all those other children who were wiped out. I'm old. I'm a failure. All I've done is guard someone else's sheep out in the backside of the desert. And God is like, you are way too much focused on who you are and who you aren't when you should be focused on who I am. God is the I am when we crash and everything shatters. He's our solid ground. Despite all the disasters, he got Moses where he needed to go. Despite the enslavement of Israel, he promised to get them to where they needed to go, back to this mountain to worship. And God is still inviting people like us, people who have had crap happen to us, people who have even done crap to others. We've hurt ourselves. We've hurt others. We've ruined our own story. He keeps inviting us to join him and bringing salvation to the captives. Now, the word salvation in the New Testament can be about spiritual freedom from sin and death, and it many times is. But that's how we usually think about the only use of that word. In the Greek New Testament, the word can also mean justice. Salvation that promises a future hope after death but offers no hope now is cheap. I think justice is a gospel issue because the gospel is not just the death of Jesus but his life resurrection and ascension too. Jesus just didn't care about souls. He didn't come into villages and he's like, you really need to enter my kingdom and become my disciples. What else did he do? He healed people. He didn't just go to the cross. He settled arguments and he fed the hungry. Um, there's been a recent wave of pastors I've noticed online saying things like, just preach the gospel. Often in response to social justice movements, they're like, don't worry about that. Just preach the gospel. When we say just preach the gospel, many times what we're saying is don't worry about loving people or exemplifying a livable Christianity. Just worry about forcing our particular atonement theory on them so they get their theology right. Get them to believe like us, and then God can take care of their needs for food and water. The only problem with that thinking, of course, is Jesus. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus is really dangerous. Like, he messes up my theology all the time. Um, all the time I think something, I'm like, yeah, this is right. And then I read Jesus, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't fit. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 35 through 40. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for the gospel must both be preached and demonstrated. People will never believe the gospel that is spoken but is not lived out. When people say just preach the gospel, they forget that demonstrating the gospel through things like social justice, for caring for the poor, for caring for the sick, doesn't weaken the preaching of the gospel. It strengthens it. I like what Pastor John Ortberg says. Salvation is not primarily about you going to a good place but primarily about you becoming good people. So often I was taught that salvation is all about where we're headed. Just ignore right here because it doesn't matter anyways. But there are people all around me who don't believe the message about going someplace because of the way we treat people right here. Everyone's life has painful swerves in it, every one of our stories. Uh, some of those are swerves because someone did something to us, something was out of our control, something happened to us. Some of those swerves are things we've done to ourselves when we've made poor decisions and there's consequences. I think at the end of our lives, we're going to look back and see that we never experienced pain just for pain's sake. It was always refinement for the good of the world. As my therapist told me this week, grief has the unique ability to grow our compassion for others if we will let it. So what do you do if today you feel purposeless? Like you're like, I don't have a purpose. My life, it feels like a waste. I haven't achieved what I wanted. What do I do? Um, first, let me suggest that you find ways to help others right where you are. The CDC released da data that suggests one in four adults ages 18 to 24 have considered suicide this month. One in four. That's way too high. And according to the recently released Harvard Youth Poll of Americans ages 18 to 29, 51% of young Americans say that at least several days in the past two weeks they have felt down, depressed, or without purpose. At the intersection between your greatest passion and your deepest hurt and the world's most pressing needs is your purpose. We exist for each other. We have been raised in a culture that teaches us to pursue our way, have it our way, pursue our interests, pursue our needs, but it's only in the pursuit of serving others that we find our purpose. The greatest of you, according to Jesus in Matthew 23, is not the one with the biggest bank account or the most followers on Insta. Or, you know, the one who can be a speaker who gathers millions. The greatest will be the one who serves. God created me and he created you to take my passions and my pains and to see where I can use them to help my fellow humans in need in the world. Now, I don't know about you. Sometimes we live in a global uh, world. Like, I hear about things on the other side of the planet that before the internet I never would have learned about, and unless someone wrote a book and I read it 10 years later. But now we get real-time updates on Twitter that, you know, there's this famine over here, and there's this earthquake over here, and there's this revolt over here, and there's this unrest over here. And many times I feel paralyzed. I see all the needs in the world, and I'm like, too much for me to do, and so I do nothing. So I want to encourage you, get super local. 
Focus on the people you interact with every day. This week, walk through life with your eyes open and look for needs in the lives of the people around you. People all around us are hurting all the time. And God has positioned us in their lives to bring them words of life and encouragement and hope and introductions to him. Meet people where you are and where they are. Second, craft a lament to God. Um, the Bible is full of people getting raw and honest with God about what sucks in their story. Uh, and this is never condemned. And I love this. When people shout at heaven in the Bible, no one's like, you can't do that. You know, God's not, God never throws down lightning on someone who's like, this isn't fair. I don't like it. It's never condemned. And the biblical authors don't try to hide it. Being frustrated with some painful swerves in our story seems to be a part of the human experience. And at the same time, it seems to be a part of the Christian faith. It's right there in the pages of the Bible. And if the psalmist who shout at God about his lack of faithfulness can have their laments find their way into the Holy Scriptures, I think God can handle our cries of lament and disappointment and pain. I think it is healthy, and I think if Scripture is our guide, it is expected that we would pour out some honest anger at God when life takes a swerve. He's big enough to take it. Um, confusion, exhaustion, and disappointment many times lead us to retreat from God, but don't run away from him. Take your pain and your anger, your frustration to him. He can take your grief and disappointment. Darby grew up around Atlanta, and she always says when she's really mad, she takes her earrings off. She's like, hold on, I'm taking my earrings off. You know, like a fight's about to start. I love how when Moses comes into the presence of God, God says, take your shoes off. He's like, take off your religious... Um, pretenses. When you approach me, you're coming stripped down. Let me have it. Like, don't hold back. Don't hide. Let me see the ugly parts of yourself. I can handle them. You're not impressing anyone when you go to God. A lament is not about praying something flowery. You know those people sometimes when they pray and you're like, that wasn't for God. That was to show off for everybody listening that he knew all these big words and he made it sound so beautiful, right? When you craft a lament to God, you're not impressing anyone. Shout, cry, swear, his love can handle it. And so this week, I want to encourage you, read some psalms of lament. Psalm 13, Psalm 25, Psalm 31, Psalm 86. Just Google songs of, psalms of lament and read them aloud as prayers to God. Finally, we've been ending each week in this series with a breath prayer where we say God's name as we breathe in and then we just craft a prayer to him as we breathe out. So here's our prayer for today. Father, I hate what I've gone through. Father, I don't think I can go on if this is in my story. Father, I don't want this to be my story. I don't want this to be what my life's about. But Father, somehow use this in me. And Father, somehow use this through me to help others.